This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. You're listening to Scaling Up Services, where we speak with entrepreneurs, authors, business experts, and thought leaders to give you the knowledge and insights you need to scale your service-based business faster and easier. And now, here is your host, business coach, Bruce Eckfeld. Welcome, everyone. This is Scaling Up Services. I'm Bruce Eckfeld. I'm your host. And our guest today is Chris Voss. And Chris is CEO and founder of the Black Swan Group. Uh, we're going to find out a little bit more about his background. And he is the author of Never Split the Difference, which is one of my favorite books on negotiating. And it's a little different take. I'm, I'm excited to have this. I think we're going to get some good insight and some good perspective on approaching negotiation. So with that, Chris, welcome to the program. Thanks, Bruce. Happy to be here. Thank you for having me on. Yeah. So, and one of the things I love about your book, and I've, I've got a lot of you know business folks, business friends that talk about never split the difference. But the curious thing for me, or the thing that I love about it is that is your background, because you don't come out of business, right? You're coming out of FBI, um, you know, different, a whole different world when it comes to negotiating, you know, in business, we're, you know, trying to get, uh, you know, another 2% on a deal, you know, that's a different case than the kind of stuff you have to deal with. <laughs> so, so why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and how the book came about, and then we can get into some of the concepts. Well, it's true. I am a recovering FBI agent. <laughs> I've been in recovery for about 11 years now. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm a FBI hostage negotiator. Uh, was a FBI's lead international kidnapping negotiator. And really, uh, one of the big differences, because there's kind of there's kind of two tools in, in all yeah. business negotiations. I mean, there's a tactical application of empathy. You know, the mercenary's empathy, the empathy that Stephen Covey was really talking about. So you first understand, then be understood. Why do you want to understand? Because you want to be understood. You're trying to get your point across. That was a fundamental basis of, you know, bank robbery hostage negotiations, a barricade hostage negotiations. Whereas a hostage negotiator, I want to get everything. And, you know, as a friend of mine used to say, we sold jail sentences and we had buyers. (laughs) You know, hostage negotiator is the ultimate cold caller. Yeah. And see, the thing is, though, we repeat customers, so we can't lie to people. Uh, <laughs> I like a lot it. of people think hostage negotiations, you say whatever you want because it's a one off. You're never going to see that guy again. Well, that's not true. If they, you know, if we talk to them, they probably didn't kill anybody. If they didn't kill anybody, there were no acts of violence. They're not going to do that much time in jail. They're going to yeah. get out. We're yeah. going to see them again. So we had repeat customers. Oh, I see. I see. Interesting. And it was there was actually a situation where one guy who had, who'd been on the run for about ten days and committed four homicides it occurred in Baltimore, one of the largest manhunts in the history of that city, the largest manhunt. When they cornered him, uh, Baltimore County negotiators were a little little amped up. The yeah. first guy on the phone was a little rattled, and a bad guy literally said to him, "You're not doing a good job. You're supposed to be establishing rapport with me." <laughs> this is the, this is uh, coaching. This is the the, the uh, perpetrator uh, coaching the hostage negotiator. I love it. 
Yeah, yeah, because he'd been barricaded before. Yeah. We, you know, we got repeat customers. I mean, I guess let's talk just a little bit about the, sort of the history of that whole kind of negotiating, because I think, I mean, there's been developments, right? I mean, the, the whole kind of strategy that you use as a hostage negotiator, you know, over the last, I don't know, 50, 60, 70 years. I mean, what have you learned? I mean, I'm assuming psychology and all these kind of things have had a big impact on the strategy of negotiating in these kind of situations. Well, there wasn't much outside of practical application before neuroscience that really had any kind of impact. And neuroscience has actually told us we were right all along. Hostage negotiation first thought that it was, you know, I don't know, it was BS and, you know, who was the best BSer? Um, And so uh, when they first invented it back in the 70s, they went to psychologists, you know, they went to business and they kind of tried bargaining skills. And then they found out that it wasn't really bargaining. It was crisis intervention. Yeah. It was emotional intelligence is what yeah. it really was. It's emotional intelligence. Yeah. And so the first big shift was to get really – psychology is not you – know, it's going to sound harsher. You psychologists out there, I apologize, but you guys <laughs> guys going to gonna have a hard time arguing with me. Psychology was never really that much about emotional intelligence. <laughs> and so we began to actively apply emotional intelligence just by – Trial and error, learning the hard way. And the real big shift was probably along around the late, mid to late 90s, away from BSing psychology much more into, and I'm not calling psychology BSing them, those are two separate things, much more into crisis intervention, which now we just look at as emotional intelligence. And it's kind of interesting how it's come full circle in a business community because now there's an old saying, IQ gets you hired, EQ will get you fired. <laughs> if you don't have EQ, you're screwed. Yeah. yeah. You know, your resume will get you in the door, but your emotional intelligence, your application of emotional intelligence differentiates you from everybody else. And yeah. that's really what, what hostage negotiation always was. It was emotional intelligence. Yeah. And, and what were the basic strategies? I mean, uh, you know, when you look at it from an EQ lens, what is the process or when you're dealing with a hostage negotiation, what are the what is the basic kind of levels or process that you're trying to work through from a process point of view? Well, we're trying uh, what we're trying what we now in a black sworn group call trust based influence. We're trying to establish okay. trust based influence. Now, there's um, it's it seems indirect, but it's a massive time saver. And the other thing, too, that see, trust based influence is durable. You know, it's when you have yeah. a great relationship with somebody. It's a it's a business colleague that you guys only touch base every few months, but you're on the same page immediately. Most sales, if you will, traditional sales is this, you know, this yes momentum or this momentum selling crap nonsense. <laughs> Yeah, And you got to be in a room with the person the whole time to see that through. Now, that's not physically possible. That's why so many deals fall apart. Because as soon as you get out of the room, this old yes logic crap that you're using falls, on people falls through. Yeah. Falls through and, they, and they realize, hey, this, what they really, they get a sense of unease. Yeah. And, and they realize that, you know, this, this logic fable that you spun on them, it doesn't really apply when they get back to their office and their real problems and, and they fail to follow through. That's why yes is nothing without how. Mm, yeah. So it just, it just doesn't hold up when, once they kind of go back to their normal conditions, normal environments. Nah, it doesn't hold up yeah. at all. So talk to me about trust. So if we're, if we're, if, if we're using this trust based influence strategy, what, what are the elements of trust? What do I, what do I do or what do, what do I need to have to build that trust? Well, you know, the first thing is really substitute the word predictability for trust. Okay. Um, we want to know what's going to happen. We're a lot more comfortable with what's going to happen. And we want the person we're talking to not to be perfect, to be accountable, which means, you know, we can get them on a phone and really they don't waste our time. 
Yeah. So, and then they've demonstrated competence, which is not the same as confidence. Oh, sorry. So competence versus confidence. Okay. Exactly. A lot of people say, ah, you know, I'm going to be, I'm going to be really confident. Like, uh, you know, I had an ex-girlfriend of mine. She used to like to say, you know, I, I may not always be right, but I'm never in doubt. <laughs> One of my favorite phrases. <laughs> yeah. But you know what? That person's confident. They're not competent. Yeah. Which it's better to be really... right and not have doubt. But <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, you know, if somebody doesn't know something, you know, instead of yeah. bullshitting them, you say, you know, that's a really good question. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find out. I don't know. And here, and then you hmm. go, all right, so here's what's important to you. Because every question really reveals what, what's important to people. You got to make sure you get that right. There's an old phrase, a question behind the question. Okay. You ask me a question. If I, if I answer it initially, the end of my answer is always going to be, what makes you ask? Interesting. Because I really got to find out that I dialed in on the right topic. And I would say at least two-thirds of the time, you didn't ask me the question right, which means my answer was flawed. So if I leave if I leave out what makes you ask, I'll think I've answered your question when in fact, unfortunately, you didn't really either, you just didn't ask me the question right. Like, you know, I like that because I think there's kind of this assumption that the the person that I that we're speaking to or negotiating with or what are having this conversation with is is perfectly clear and perfectly knowledgeable. <laughs> and and I think that idea of, you know, the what makes you ask question is kind of this acknowledgement that they may not know exactly what they want to hear or what they're trying to figure out. And it, it sort of shifts it to a little bit more of a consult, sort of consultative approach or, or you're, you're asking the question, but you're also finding out what new information or what new questions that poses to the person and how do you continue that conversation. I think yeah. it's a good one. And we use that in sales a lot. I mean, just kind of that whole you know, consultative selling, you know, half the job is helping the customer figure out how to buy, <laughs> you know, not just trying to figure out right. how to sell them. Right. Uh, okay. So that, yeah. that's anything else with trust? Anything, anything else that goes into this kind of concept of trust? Uh, you know, predictability. And, and here's the crazy thing about predictability that most people don't realize. You're going to call, typically you're in a, you're in an implementation relationship or you're even you're selling something. Mm-hmm. You only call them one or two times when you have good news, when you have bad news, that makes your contact completely unpredictable because huh. you don't know when you're going to have either. Yeah. In fact, it's always a surprise. It's almost the reverse. It's like when I, when I hear from you, I know I'm going to get a surprise. It's like the opposite of predictability. There you go. Exactly yeah. right. So on, on a regular basis, like I, I got a business relationship now and this, this company, you know, they keep me in the dark until they have something good to report. Consequently, while I'm in the dark, you know, I'm like, all right, cl- the clock is ticking. I'm going to, I'm going to start the implementation on my own. They don't. They don't have any idea how many problems they're they're causing for me in this relationship. I can't. I can't be kept in the dark. But that's what ends up happening. And so, if we just had a regular touch base call yeah. once a week on the status, and even if there's nothing new, a touch base that says eh, there's nothing new. I'm like, uh, we went out. We did this. We did this. We did this. We got nothing out of it. Yeah. Now I'm informed. The unpredictability is gone. But most people won't do that because they feel like, ah, you know, if I go out and I talk about my efforts without results, then I'm going to look stupid and I'm look like I'm failing. So I'm not going to do that. The flip side of it is that ignores human nature. Now they're losing my trust every single day that they do that to me. Yeah, yeah, I can see the the dilemma though. You know, as a kind of service provider, it's like, yeah, you want to. Well, A, you don't want to have a call if you don't have, you know, at least relevant information, ideally positive information, you know, kind of the, 
the call without any substantive meaning, you know, is difficult. And the flip side is when when you do get something good, you want to call right away. <laughs> so, you know, saving it, sort of saving it to the status call, I can see it being a challenge. But yeah, I mean, I guess if you're really, if your focus is building trust rather than just trying to get a one-off win or deal with a one-off situation, establishing a regular routine is going to build that build that better. Yeah, and little things like that. I mean, in my company, one of the mantras we live by is ignore human nature at your peril. Yeah. You know, you may not like it, but there's no avoidance of this issue. Yeah. Is that keeping people in the dark and uncertainty is a is a daily deterioration of trust. Yeah. yeah there's I no mean, avoiding that. Well, and it seems like I mean many business environments now are, you know, just so much more you know, kind of complex and dynamic and, you know, business is moving, you know, just more quickly these days. It seems like there's a more, more of a chance of that. It seems like that kind of dynamic is increasing in the general business world. Yeah, it, it, it is. And that's why, you know, there's, there's, that's why 80% of the people out there are mediocre and I only like dealing with superstars. Yeah. Yeah. A players. Yeah. So, so you've had this long legacy in the you know hostage uh, negotiation situations. How have you been applying it to businesses? I mean, let's talk about some of the you know services uh, you provide. What kind of companies are you working with? What are you helping them do? And then what are you what are you teaching them? What are you leveraging in terms of the insights that you've developed over time? Yeah, the, the people that we're coaching through their negotiations are killing it. I mean, they're just killing it. Yeah. We we work with companies across the spectrum. We uh, we prefer to work with high performance individuals, which is not the same thing. Okay. You know, there's a reason that 40 percent of the Fortune 500 are going to be gone in 10 years. Yep. Most companies, you know, their culture is a mess. They don't have a learning culture. You know, yep. we run into company after company that leaves your development to you. If you want to yeah. get better, it's on you. Yeah. And a lot of their, a lot of the people at the top of their company are like, eh, you know, look, I developed myself on my own. That's how I got better. It's yeah. This whole projection bias crap. You know, <laughs> I took, I took my yeah. career into my hands. Yeah, and therefore and everyone else should too. Everyone else should too. Yeah. And and then simultaneously they say to themselves, why is our turnover lower? Why do why do people leave us? Why do the talented people leave us? Yeah. You know, it's funny. I I run into that one. Uh, so I end up coaching a lot of you know founders and CEOs and and. Oftentimes we have this conversation and they'll they'll be complaining about somebody and they're like, well, they didn't figure it out on their own. They should have done the research. You know, they should have just, uh, you know, a, a really good person would have done that. That's how I did it. I'm like, oh, wait a right. minute. You know, if that's how you did it, if you want more people like you around you, how's that going to play out? What did you do? You left your company and started a company. Right. <laughs> like you're right. just going to find a whole bunch of people that want to leave you. <laughs> right, 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 right. So yeah, yeah, yeah this kind crazy. of projection bias is huge. Yeah. And then, you know, and then the, the real ramifications of that, because, you know, one of the theories is, you know, what if we invest in them and they leave us? And what if we don't and they don't leave? Yeah. So, you know, who's going to stick around? The yeah. people that you're not investing in, why do they stick around? They're there for a paycheck. They're not there to help you get better. You're not investing in them. You know, they, they care as much about you as you've demonstrated you care about them. I mean, there's the culture problems in corporate America are crazy. Daniel Core wrote a great book called The, the Culture Code. Yeah. And I wish to hell every senior executive would read it because it's phenomenal. Yeah, yeah. So that really gets you this kind of A player. So so you've decided that in order to be successful, in order to really leverage your kind of capabilities, you need to be working with A players, you know, these high performance individuals. What what else is on your litmus test of when you're speaking with a prospect or a potential client, 
what do you look for? What are the other characteristics that you look for? Well, you know, we teach people to tease out whether or not, real quickly, yeah. to tease out whether or not an opportunity is real. Now, in, in reality, anywhere from 20 to 80% of the opportunities that come people's way are fake opportunities. Or, you know, it's fake news. It's fake opportunities. People are uh, looking for free consulting yeah. or they're looking for you to come up with a competing bid. You know, there's an interesting yep. book that came back in 2011 called The Challenger Sale, that, that, and, and they quantified it that said 20, every bit of 20% of the opportunities that come your way are fake opportunities. Yeah. I yeah. think the number is actually much higher than that because a lot of people won't admit that they're, you know, they, they say they're open to working with you when in fact they're not because of emotional biases that they're unwilling to admit. Yep. But so... Um, one of the reasons why, um, you know, we increase deal velocity with people that we coach is, first of all, think how much time you're going to get back if you can if you can tease out the 20 percent of fake opportunities and stop wasting time on. Them. Yeah, no, I think that's I mean, that's one of the huge kind of inefficiencies in most sales funnels and sales process. I mean, I do it on the recruiting side, too, is, you know, wasting your time with with candidates, with prospects that are, are going to end up just either you qualifying or they qualify themselves out at the end of the funnel. And now you've wasted all this time during that process. Right. Right. Yeah, so sniffing that out early, being able to sniff that out early is key. Yeah. Sniff it out. And then, and also then consequently doing it in a way that actually enhances your relationship with that person. Okay. Talk to me more about that. Cause we, we got to go back to the hostage negotiators mantra that there's no such thing as a one off. Yeah. You know, this, this, if I've run across this person once, even if they're actively, after free consulting, they have no intention of ever paying me. Yep. I got to terminate that interaction as quickly as possible, but also as positively as possible. Yeah. And here's what because you know, they're, they're going to there could be a time in a year or two where they come back to you with a real opportunity, right? Yeah. Or or you know, or or they got a friend or <laughs> negative. They got a friend. Negative yeah. karma is never never in our favor. Yeah. You know, if you act like a jerk, like even that. if. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, people are going to hear about it. Ah, you know, I talked to Voss over the Black Swan group, and uh, yeah. I just wanted information from us, from them, and they really they're really lousy about it. Those guys are a bunch of jerks. Yeah, I don't need that. Yep. You know, Lufthansa approaches us because, in reality, they want to know how we do our stuff so that the provider they currently use for training can duplicate it. Mm-hmm. And I sniff that out really fast. So and so so a how do you sniff it out and then b how do you how do you pivot that or how do you how do you terminate that in, in a, an appropriate way? Uh, you know I you know I say look you know you got you guys have been you guys got a provider you you've been working with them for a long time they're phenomenal yeah what are you looking at us for why why would you do business with us mm-hmm. and the answer where I know it's a fake opportunity is they say why wouldn't we I mean it's on it's it's on you to sell us. So they don't they don't they don't give you a substantive answer. I mean, I, I got to say that that's that takes a lot of emotional intelligence <laughs> to to be able to have that kind of conversation with a prospect that early to almost kind of unsell or just kind of question question the prospects desire to do business. I mean, because that's it's somewhat not counterintuitive, but at least counter reactional, like getting a lead, you'd want to be like all over it. Sure. Yeah. Like, let's let's talk about everything you want right. let's talk about everything right. you need. Yeah, yeah, you, you sucker for it. I mean, and that's why the people that we're teaching kill it because we we're doing something it. counterintuitive, but we're also doing it in a respectful way. Yeah. So talk to me about the respectful side. How do you make it? Just how do you not you know, just hang up the phone? You know, just well, you know, um, I'm going to ask that question early on. Then I'm going to ask some confirming questions. You know, I know what the profile, if you will, of someone who's never going to hire us looks like. Yeah. So, but I'm going to if they say why wouldn't I? What that does is it, it triggers 
visioning answers. Okay. Now, what I've done is I've actually caught them off guard. Now, if they ever had any intention of doing business with me, they would have already thought about it. They'd have mm. an answer. Mm. And what I'm looking for, hostage negotiators, what we do is we find out what's in your head. And then we use the same set of skills if there's a deal to be had to get you to take another look, to get in there. There's no decision without vision. So I got to know what your vision is to start with. And then I've got to use uh, this set of skills, this, what we refer to as tactical empathy. And I'll tell you why we call it tactical empathy in a minute. Yeah. But I'm going to use a set of skills called tactical empathy to get you to willingly take another look at things. Yeah. I like this. I mean, I, I often use the idea of you have to understand the frame, like, a, you know, figuring out the other person, whether it's a management situation or a sales or uh, yeah. negotiation, yeah. like figuring out the other person's frame. Because the problem is, is that if, if you look at their situation with your frame, you're bound to make mistakes. You're bound to, you know, value things in the wrong way. You're bound to miss factors or facets or concerns or fears. And so, you know, understanding that other person's frame is kind of, you know, key to any of this kind of how to have any kind of connection conversation, you know, whether you're negotiating or whether you're just trying to manage somebody. Uh, I guess management is a form of negotiation at some level. You know, that understanding that thing. And I guess it's, you know, it's the essence of EQ, but yeah, yeah it is. It is. You, no, you're dead on. Yeah. I think you, you're, you're framing it for me well. I like it. Yeah. And, and frame is a relatively common term of someone who's come to have a good gut instinct for this. I mean, you don't really know exactly what it is, but in your world, all right, so frame, a picture frame, yeah. it indicates perspective. I really need to get into their perspective. That's a good term. Yeah. yeah. So understanding understanding their perspective, understanding that frame. So I like this idea that if the, the way that you can sort of suss out whether or not someone has a real intention of hiring you is to kind of test if they've really have a full full thinking around the process. And if if you're able to determine that, oh, they haven't they haven't thought about these questions, which means they're not approaching it from a real engagement. They're approaching it from a research point of view. That's your tell. That's that's the the indicator to you that this is not a, a viable or a real engagement opportunity. But but by asking those questions, what you're saying is that you begin to show kind of your power of insight and power of questioning that when they do come up with a real one, they'll they'll be thinking of you, or at least you'll, they'll have you in mind in a positive way of being, hey, this is someone I should go talk to. Right. Okay. Yeah, which then, which then kind of gets us all to another counterintuitive approach. We can't get away with a mediocre last impression. <laughs> yeah. Now, people put all their effort into the first impression because we're scared to death of a bad first impression, and then we end up making mediocre last impressions, and a last impression is a lasting impression. We just screwed ourselves. Yeah. You know, the, I, I ran across some data probably back in 2008 or so, Gallup organization on how we remember. We don't remember based on the way things happen. We do not remember chronological order. Okay. We, we remember the most intense moment and how it ended, yeah. Yeah. which then really takes the first impression almost entirely away. You know, your first impression only needs to not be bad. Yeah. You just don't don't screw it up. <laughs> right. Yeah. And that it, there ain't that much effort there. Yeah. The amount of effort that's but the amount of effort that's actually put into first impression. If you took all that and put it into your last impression, you now would build your your deal pipeline, your customer pipeline, your opportunity pipeline in a massively huge way. And that's how it continues to come back to you. So you make sure that your last impression is really built around all the stuff that you, you know, you were willing to kill for in the first impression, you know, how much regard you have for them, how the fact that you're talking indicates you'd love to have a long term prosperous relationship. Just take all that stuff from the beginning and at least repeat it at the end. Yeah. 
Yeah, kind of bookend it. All right. So let's talk about tactical tactical empathy. That was your term? Yeah, you know, because we just know so much more about how the brain works. You know, I know what I'm looking for now, and I know how to dial up negative emotions, and I know how to dial down negative emotions and dial up positive. But the one thing that we know now more than anything else is negative emotions, fear of loss mm-hmm. is the outsized driver of decision making. Yeah. Now that seems like, well, duh, of course, right? But nobody applies it that way because 70% of buy decisions are made to avoid loss when, in fact, everybody out there is pitching gain. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm going to increase your business by X. I'm going to generate this many more revenues or much more profit. Okay. Right, right. Okay. But, but, but wait a minute. That flies in the face of what we just discussed. Yeah. Yeah, it does. People are buying to avoid loss, not to accomplish gain. And you get a lot of people that say, oh, no, I've made a lot of deals pitching gain. Yeah, but your batting average is, is a third of what it should be. Yeah. You know, that, there, there's, there's another fact that's out there is that 50% of customers have made up their mind before they talk to a salesperson. Yet no salesperson's close rate is 50% of initial contacts. What's wrong with the math? Yeah. I mean, that's, there's an astonishing difference there because if a salesperson is closing 20% of their initial contacts, they're probably the, the top salesperson in the history of that company. Because they're really closing 40, 40% of possible contacts. You're saying 50% of the contacts are just off the table. They're predecided. Well, you know, there's the issue. How many of them have, have the decision they made is they're not going to do business with oh, you? Oh, I see. I see. Okay. Because could, the decision could be either way. <laughs> right. You know, but the decision's already been made. So yeah. what is that decision? But then there's a fair amount of people that called you intending to do business with you. Uh-huh. And you lost those people. Yeah. Why did you lose those people? Well, there's some, the, the, you're, you're, if you're pitching gain and they're looking, you know, every, every salesperson knows you're supposed to look for the pain. That's loss. So if that's true, why are you pitching gain? Yeah. Well, so how do we do this without being fear mongering and, and just, uh, you know, negative about it? There you go. And, that, and that, that's the challenge. And that's, again, where you do it by applying empathy first tactically instead of going straight for the throat. You know, there's a sequencing issue. Bob, Bob Manukin is the head of the program on negotiation at Harvard. Mm-hmm. I learned a lot from Bob. I talked about him in the very first part of the book. And his negotiation book, the second chapter is titled The Tension Between Empathy and Assertiveness, because we think we have to do one or the other, mm. when in fact, the title is a, is a red herring, if you will. It's yeah. meant to be deceptive because you get halfway through the chapter and you go, wait a minute, Bob's <laughs> not contending there's a tension. He's contending that empathy is necessary first to be assertive. Yeah. And most of us, when someone's been assertive with us, you know, it's been blunt force trauma. Yeah. We think assertion is combat. Yeah. And nobody takes the time to assert in a way that the other side can hear. You know, you assert, you feel slapped around. I would remind you that you, you know, if you don't do this, you know, you're screwed. Is yeah. In some in substance. And sometimes not much more sophisticated than that. You know, how do you, do, how do, you do it in an emotionally intelligent way? You proceed with empathy that's designed to hit certain parts of the other person's brain first so they can't hear you. Okay. And so what are some of those parts and what are some techniques? Let's, let's give some examples or some, some specifics. Uh, first one is um, it's as simple as tone of voice. Like if we get a, we get a contract, it's got a work for hire clause in. You know, my company doesn't do work for hire, period, for anybody. doesn't matter. If you are, literally, if you offer me $20 billion, yeah. Because work for hire, we lose control of our our intellectual property. Yeah. 
subsequently in our future. So yeah. you got to give me enough money to compensate me for the rest of my future. If I get a, um, I get a contract with a work for hire clause and I don't call the guy up and I, I say, look, Bruce, <laughs> yeah. we don't do work for hire. Let's get this clear <laughs> right now. Yeah. That, that would be bad tone of voice, bad assertion. Instead, I'm going to call you up. I'm going to say, Bruce, I get bad news. And I'm going to say it like that. And then I'm going to shut the front door. <laughs> I'm going to shut up. I'm not going to say yeah. another word. So, well, so what, what, what's the bad news? Tell me. Yeah. yeah, there you go. And that's exactly what you'll do. Now, the important part of that dynamic is I'm making sure you don't get caught off guard. Yeah, yeah. Because catching somebody with bad, hey, I can, hey, Bruce, uh, you know, how, how are the kids today? I mean, you watched a game last night? You know, I, you know, I really wish the Lakers could make the playoffs. You know, when they added, you know, all this old BS nonsense. Yeah. Right? And you're sitting there wondering, you know, What's the old by the way here? Yeah, you're waiting. <laughs> you're waiting for the shoe to drop. Yeah, but that means I'm I'm trying to catch. I'm trying to butt you up. I'm gonna catch you off guard. I'm saying, Bruce, I get bad news, man. And then I'm not gonna proceed till you give me the proceed yeah. per, per, permission to proceed. Mm-hmm. You're now prepped. You got your guard up. You're gonna appreciate the fact that I let you put your guard up. I'm gonna say, Bruce, I'm sorry. We don't do work for hire. Yeah. Now there's a, there's another thing I did. First thing I did was before I hit you with the bad news, I said, I'm sorry. Instead yeah. of what most people do would be like, you know, combative, yeah. We don't do we don't do work for hire. I'm sorry. The I'm sorry came at the mm. end is not as effective. Yeah. You need to put it at the beginning. There's a big criticism of women in the business world that they uh, apologize too much. You shouldn't say I'm sorry. It's not that you shouldn't say I'm sorry. It's where you put it that makes all the difference. Ooh, fascinating. And mo- meaning most people put it at the end as like a, Almost, I'm sorry to have said this to you, as opposed to, I'm sorry for what I'm going to have to tell you right now, because I know it, it may be hard to hear. Right, I'm going right. to tell you anyway. <laughs> the two millimeter shift, right? Yeah. It's, it's sequencing. And yeah. we understand because of experience in high stress negotiations, and then the neuroscience that backs it up, and, and the fact that we practice what we preach. Most negotiation consultants you go to, if you severed them from the university they were attached to, they would not exist. Yeah. Uh, there's only one other viable consultancy out there that I'm aware of that's done really well that wasn't attached to university in some fashion besides us. Yeah. We, why, we, why is that? What is the day. what's the dynamic there? You know, it's a really good question. I mean, it's absent having a book out. What's going to make you want to go to a negotiation consultant? Yeah. Your first okay. question is why haven't you got a book out? Thought leadership, kind of reputation, authority. Yeah. Yeah. How have you established yourself as an expert? Yeah. And even if the book is out, then. If you're a practitioner who's really good at it, you probably can't explain it. Yeah. And well, you know what we found in, in applying it and ex- simultaneously explaining it. First, having to explain it to cops whose BS meters are real high. Yeah. And if you're not, uh, you know, as an FBI agent trying to teach police officers, you talk about a hostile environment. <laughs> yeah. You know, so being able to explain it effectively is something that my company's how we started from the beginning. There's, there's, there's four of us to train. Three of us were uh, ex- experienced instructors in hostage negotiation. And the fourth guy is probably the most talented one of the whole crew is my son. And he's just been dealing with this stuff since he was two years <laughs> exactly. old. Exactly. He's been, he's been trained through trial by fire. <laughs> yeah. I love it. I love it. So let's try, let's squeeze in one more. What, what else do you see that, you know, most people kind of get wrong or, or misstep when it comes to uh, either, you know, approaching the process of negotiation or the actual negotiation itself? What's another good takeaway for folks? Well, you know, hear the other side out first, you know, give them a chance to talk themselves into your deal. 
If you want to go first, you're now taking that opportunity away. And there's, a, you know, in whatever you have to say, anywhere from 10 to, you know, 60% of it is going to be perfect for me. I want to find out what that percentage is before I proceed. Yeah. You know, I'm not, I'm not interested in fighting any battles I don't have to fight. Yeah. So I'm going to give you the opportunity to win the day if you win with my answers. Yeah. And that, that ends up being one of the, the other stealth time savers. Because now we're dialed in on what really matters if you go first, because you're going to tell me what really matters instead of me having a guess about it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I see that one go wrong a lot. <laughs> people, yeah. people get all amped up and they go running into the negotiation and they're like, uh, let me let me tell you what we want to do. Or here's the offer that we have. And they just start, you know, presentation and, and documents and uh, points, bullet points and discussion points. and. <laughs> Because they worked so hard on it. They yeah, yeah. Well, they're emotionally invested. Emotionally invested, yeah. right? They, it's hard. Yeah, having having a, a little bit of uh, distance from it, and just being willing to know that, hey, this, you know, it may not work. Uh, I think people get really caught up into, I've got to make it work, and that that often that often uh, skews things. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> Oh, this is good. Um, so we're going to hit time here. This has been great. I've learned a lot. It's been a lot of fun. What If people want to learn more about you, about Black Swan, what's what's the best way to get that information? Subscribe to our newsletter. It's a complimentary newsletter. It's very concise, and it's the gateway to everything. comes out Tuesday mornings, and it's the gateway to our, our training. we got a lot of free products. We put a lot of stuff out there that's free. You know, I had a friend of mine in the FBI used to like to say, if it's free, I'll take three. <laughs> I love it. I love so it. subscribe to the newsletter. Text to sign up function. Text to the number 22828. And the message you send to 22828 is FBI empathy, all one word. Don't let your spell check autocorrect and put a space between FBI empathy. So it's FBI empathy, all one word, sent to the number 22828. You get a text box back. We'll ask for your email address. And it's, it's the gateway. Perfect. Uh, I'll I'll make sure that that's on our show notes too, so people can uh, can get that. Yeah, it, I've uh, I've seen the newsletter several times. It's great content. So if you if you're if you're interested in this topic, I I highly recommend it. And you know certainly check out the website. Check out the book. Never split the difference. Um, like I said, one of my one of my favorite. Uh, Chris, Thanks. this has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time. Yeah, enjoyed the conversation. Have a good one. You've been listening to Scaling Up Services with Business Coach Bruce Eckfeld. To find a full list of podcast episodes, download the tools and worksheets, and access other great content, visit the website at scalingupservices.com. And don't forget to sign up for the free newsletter at scalingupservices.com slash newsletter. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.